Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So how do I identify the right property in the right place at the right time, given I've spectacularly stuffed it on the wrong, you know, wrong properties in the wrong place at the wrong time? This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we talk with Susan Farquhar, founder and CEO of Australia's leading property agency, Color Property. She shares with us some personal stories while starting and running her successful business, the failures she's experienced with property and all the things she has learned as a businesswoman and property investor. Farquhar spends her time running Cala Property, a specialist company focusing on using data to help their clients find the best investment properties catered to them. Cala Property really was founded on a proven research methodology uh, using 130 points to evaluate the right property in the right place at the right time. It's really useful and uh, I just, I've always liked, you know, a, a data-driven approach to pretty much anything so it works. Farquhar's everyday routine varies quite a bit depending on her workload and business ventures. So at the moment, I'm waking up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm going to the gym for about an hour and then I'm coming home and playing the piano for half an hour. Uh, and then I'm pretty much getting ready for work and you know having a look at my day, coming to work probably by around, uh, probably around seven or so, seven, seven thirty. And then my staff come in sort of between 8.30 and 9.00 and uh, you look, you know, running a business is every aspect of running a business from, you know, sales and marketing and training to um, platforms and processes and procedures. Um, you know, today I, uh, I met with someone I would um, like to come work with me and went through a couple of CV- CVs because I'm currently um, bringing on new BDMs. Uh, I gave another staff member the day off because she's um, she was feeling very well yesterday and she always goes above and beyond. So I just said, look, you know, work from home. If I said take the day off, she wouldn't do it. So I said work from home, hoping that she would, won't do too much work. Um, so yeah, they come into come into work and you know just really um, try to work in blocks so that I don't get too distracted by emails. But that doesn't always work. So yeah, it's been a been a busy day. I had a you know a radio guy pitch to me, um, you know potential radio advertising ideas, um, and what else? Making sort of uh, ensuring that some clients who are settling soon have got their rental strategy in place, so that we can try to ensure that uh, they have a tenant secured before the property actually settles. Every day, she's trying to make improvements to a company's internal operations strategies as well. One of the things that I think we do really well at Color Property is have a, a whole, have quite a few little strategies within the, well, uh, above and beyond the property selection process 
that really help to de-risk um, investing in property. So we've got a valuation strategy and we've got a rental strategy or a tenant strategy. Uh, so, yeah, that's one of the things I was just checking today. I've got a couple of clients that are you know, sort of coming close to practical completion in Brisbane and I thought oh, I'd better just check and, you know, sure enough, my uh, gun account manager had that sorted two months ago. However, Farquhar's only consistent habit is being inconsistent as she changes up her daily activities from time to time. I'm not very good at doing anything for you know a regu- on a regular basis long term. <laughs> That's sort of what I've been doing for the last week, and I'll probably keep it going for another two weeks. And you know, then the, the, a lot of uh, you know, as I said before, that 130 check, 130 point checklist is um, indicative of a very research heavy company, and uh, I do a lot of that research. So we have a couple of full-time researchers um, that are constantly evaluating the markets around Australia, 550 markets, as you know. Um, but once we've um, – so just to kind of give you a bit of a rundown on, on that research methodology, we've got uh, – you know, the first section is the macro research. So what are the, what are the drivers of capital growth? Um, and once you know, once we've looked at that, those key research areas, that points us in the right direction in terms of the capital city or the region that is set for strong capital growth. And then we drill down further. Uh, the micro research is really about evaluating the right property in the right location. Um, so macro is about the right time. So. Um, you know, I check up on those. Like, I won't, I won't recommend uh, property to any of my clients until I've actually been on site and I've spent, you know, between three to seven days in the area, making sure that you know everything really stacks up. Um, so, you know, I've, you know, a couple of weeks I'll be in Canberra, so that'll break my gym and piano routine. And you know, a couple of weeks ago I was in, in Geelong and uh, and Melbourne. So. Um, yeah, I'm not very good at being consistent, except I'm consistently good at being inconsistent. Farquhar lived in many places while she was growing up, both around Australia and overseas. I was actually born in Malaysia. My dad was in the Air Force, so I went from Malaysia to Adelaide and Melbourne before I was six. And um, then my parents separated and I went, uh, mum brought us to Brisbane, so I went to primary school in Brisbane mostly Um, and then I went to high school in Canberra so that was living with my dad Uh, and then when I was 15 I took a year off and went to France and did school schooling in France for a year so um, yeah so Canberra and France for high school and then university in Melbourne and Japan (laughs) and then I also lived in Thailand in the Blue Mountains and now I've been in Sydney. Having experienced so many different lifestyles and cultures, she now has the ability to adapt to any business environment and be agile when operating her business. I think it really helps me with, because I've lived in so many areas in Australia and I know them you know, very intuitively, that's been really helpful in kind of directing the research or making sense of some of the research. Um, and so far that's, you know, having that sort of layer of intuition has been really, really valuable to to the uh, recommendations that I make to my clients. Um, I think to just being able to handle agility, you know, thriving on agility. I don't need that structure and routine. I can sort of jump from one thing to the other quite with with you know quite a bit of alacrity. And I think that um, 
that's been that's useful for running a business you know being able to jump from one thing to the other and as well as keep your eye on what everyone else what what everyone is doing how the staff is handling things how all of your external suppliers are managing um i mean i've also got a very very amazing um pa who helps me enormously with all of that um without her i think there'll be a lot more balls <laughs> dropped from the air you know <laughs> sort of juggling a million things at once and she manages to catch all the things that i miss which is amazing um so yeah so i think that's been um that's been really instrumental it, it's very much a big part of who i am i think um uh, surprisingly, I don't don't crave or require stability. I like the uh, the gymnastics of life, you know, uh, and especially running a business and being able to handle um, you know a lot of different locations that I'm actually quite familiar with is really helpful when I'm you know talking to clients. After an unfortunate and severe injury, Farquhar left university to start up her own business in ceramics. When I was at university studying my first degree, I was I studied international relations, um, and I speak a lot of languages as well. So I was kind of heading down the path of um, of probably you know the UN or you know policy, international policy. Um, at the same time, I was lecturing in fine arts and running the ceramics studio at Melbourne Uni. Uh, it's part of the activity centre, and um, then I was writing my thesis on Australian aid agencies and ethics and I was halfway through my thesis when I fell off a building. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I fell uh, seven metres headfirst into oh. bluestone and fractured oh. my skull and skull and my back in two places. So that kind of put a damp dampener on things. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I ended up, um, I, that was in Melbourne and I, I was very, very frail and very, um, very weak and, uh, you know, not, yeah, just couldn't think properly. I had massive head injury. Um, and we ended up moving, my partner and I at the time ended up moving up to the Blue Mountains, um, ironically, because we were very avid rock climbers. It's more that my partner at the time was really, yeah, he was really into it. I mean, I thought, well, that's a good place for me to co- to convalesce as well as for him to still be able to be active in climbing. And we already knew some people up there in the climbing scene. So that seemed like a, a good idea at the time. And um, and I actually set up my ceramic studio there and I ended up supplying 60 shops around Australia and exporting to four countries with my ceramics um, company. While her ceramic studio was her first official experience running a business, she had always had an inkling for entrepreneurship ever since she was young. Well, other than some little ones when I was, when I was little. <laughs> I used to make stuff and sell it when I was like 10. I had a little stall at the you know front of the church. And also an inventor, like used to invent things all the time, even though I, I, I might not have actually created it, I conceptualised it. Um, you know, like the, funnily enough, the la- latest one that's come out is uh, Neuromong, you know, the tablet that's Nurofen and Panadol. And I came up with that idea when my daughter, um, she, she, she also, <laughs> it's funny how history repeats, she uh, jumped off a, a ledge and was, you know, showing off to me because I'm the brave one and she was always pretty chicken. And she's like, Mom, look, I jumped off this ledge. You know, it was at Coogee Beach into the sand. And I said, okay, cool. And anyway, she so I went over to watch her jump and she wouldn't jump. And I'm like, okay, honey, if you go, jump or not, I don't care. I've got to go back to my friends. Anyway, she jumped and she knocked herself out with her knee, like her knee hit a tin. <gasps> and she um, <laughs> just blood everywhere. Oh, I'm like, oh my no. God. 
anyway, so she's off to hospital and getting her teeth extracted and, um, you know, because it's it was a vertical fracture into from her tooth into her gum, and it's that's that's as bad as a broken bone in terms of infection, which I didn't realize. So, anyway, after that, she had to have you know two Nurofen every six hours and two Panadol every four hours, and I thought that's really awkward. You know, can't they just put it in one and have it every two hours or four hours? <laughs> so I used to you know kind of think that way and come up with stuff like that from pretty young age. Um, so I've, you know, I guess uh, quite a, I'm quite a lateral thinker and uh, quite enjoy economic type thinking, macroeconomics, where you sort of, if this happens, then what happens here? You know, if the Chinese dollar goes up, well, what effect will that have on Australian iron ore or immigration to Canada or, yeah, whatever. So, um, yeah, so that was my first real, you know, company, I guess, um, where I was employing people and, uh, you know, I was in Vogue Living and every other interior magazine that was around at the time. After a ceramics business, Farquhar pursued a few other business ventures before settling on Colour Property. And I just went on to a series of other businesses. And um, when I was about I probably probably about 37, I think, so about seven or eight years ago, I um, did my MBA and I really enjoyed maths and economics and finance and accounting and stuff, which really surprised me. Uh, I was quite good at maths at school, but I always had that really creative bent as well. Um, and I'd already done a financial planning course from because of a previous company that I that I ran. Uh, I sort of needed that just to c- kind of cover cover my tracks if there was any recourse in terms of um, advice given over the phone. Um, I was, it was actually a marketing company, but, um, you know, I just just didn't want to be exposed. So I did my financial planning qualifications um, and then did my MBA. And then when I finished my MBA, I became a mortgage broker and, um, yeah, kind of then was looking at property and, and, you know, finances. And that's really where I got into Colour Property. Despite her early start in business, Farquhar's talent in entrepreneurship was purely her own as her parents did little to help her along the way. I'm not really sure where that came from because my parents didn't do particularly well in property either. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing the funny thing is, is I remember like all of my life feeling like a little annoyed that my dad didn't teach me better about money because he was, he's so smart and, you know, he's just done so, I thought, you know, he's done so well for himself. Um, but then I actually did his, uh, I got a commercial loan for him um, and I was going through his finances um, and I just looked at his finances and went, okay, yeah, you didn't teach me because you actually didn't know, you know, not that he was doing badly. It's just that things like there was so, so much more opportunity than he realized. Um, and, you know, I, and I often talk about how um, if you look at, you know, my, my parents' generation or baby boomers, life was either really cheap or free for them. You know, they lived on one income, you know, one car, lived in a small house with one bathroom. They earned well. They had jobs for life. Um, so they didn't have to think about property, like, well, certainly about property, but they certainly didn't have to even think about money or pensions or anything like that in the way that we do. You know, the assumption was that, you know, you pay taxes all of your life, you get the pension. My dad worked for um, the Air Force, so he had a defined benefits pe- pension as well. 
Um, so, you know, I, they just didn't have to think about these things. You know, credit cards went around when my dad was a kid. Um, so, you know, they, yeah, it, it was it was silly to think that dad would have taught me anything differently. Um, he, he, you know, it just these weren't things that he'd ever had to think about. However, she doesn't believe it was unfair for her parents to not share any other tips on financial planning as those questions were simply not asked during their time. And I think that this is a fairly, you know, these are fairly recent, you know, um, generational concerns that we have about, um, you know, tax minimization, about future security, about leaving things for your kids. You know, I, I grew up fully knowing that I wasn't going to get anything. <laughs> you know, I got nothing. You're not getting anything. It's like, cool. Yeah, fair enough. I, and I and I agree with that. I don't I don't want anything. You know, like spend spend my inheritance. You've worked really hard for that. Um, and I'm you know very lucky that my parents are so healthy and um, you know travel every year and you know they just got back from camping in Botswana for God's sakes. You know, and not and not glamping like seriously camping. <laughs> But then the year before, you know, we're all skiing in Aspen together. So, you know, they, yeah, they've got to, you know, they've they've set themselves up really well. Um, but that's they've done that through investing in most like in, in in their businesses, which has been motels. So the first that first commercial loan was for a motel in Canada, and then the second they springboarded off that and got a second one in Armadale. So, you know, they've done really well with that. But yeah, we, they didn't. I didn't have those questions because those questions weren't asked. You know. So I don't really think that my parents um, influenced that too much. Um, yeah, I think I, I don't I actually don't know. Coming up after the break, we'll delve further into Farquhar's property journey, where she shares what went wrong with her first five properties. And I just remember at the time thinking, "Gosh, I just it just didn't even occur to me that I needed to know anything about property." How she managed to research her way into property investment. When I look at the macro research, which is, you know, um, economy, employment, infrastructure, supply and demand, demographics and population. Um, when you look at those key things, you know, I often say to my, my clients, you know, with this methodology, there are a couple of kill points, right? How Cala Property came about. And that was my aha moment where I looked at the numbers and then I spoke to my, because then I had a partner and I spoke to my partner and I said, what do you think? And he said, he said, we're going to be fine. And that's all I needed. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Chum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you interested in small investments with big profits? If the answer is yes, then register your interest at propertyinveststory.com. When you sign up, you'll receive deals at wholesale price which I've negotiated with the vendor. These deals generate positive cash returns from day one and I only send these out exclusively to my community. To find out more, visit propertyinveststory.com. Now back to the show. Farquhar was quick to invest in property at the age of 22. However, due to a lack of knowledge and experience in property, investments did not turn out as profitable as she had hoped. I think my first property was when I was about 22 or 23. I bought a block of land and then I built a house on it. And then I bought another property and other land. And uh, so a property that was on three blocks of land that I was doing a, a subdivision on. And uh, anyway, then when I was 26, um, my mum died and then 
I split up with my partner from my 20s and then, you know, then I was a single mother with a three-day-old baby and just all of this sort of happened, bang, 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 sort of within three years. And I had to look at what I could do for, you know, to survive and and that was obviously selling some of my portfolio. Um, And that's when I realised fairly, um, you know, in a fairly significant way that I had bought the wrong property in the wrong place at the wrong time five times over. <laughs> so, and look, the reason the, the reason for that is, you know, I bought land that doesn't give you any income. So that was, that was, you know, not a, not a good idea. Um, I bought another property in a, um, you know, at the peak of the market and then yeah, this was at the bottom of the market. So I was actually in negative equity. Um, I also bought another property on a no-doc loan that I never should have got lending on. Um, so that was, you know, back in the back in the 90s. So, um, you know, I just – things just hadn't aligned well and they could have aligned so well just once, you know, but I really royally stopped up five times. So um, – and I just remember at the time thinking, gosh, I just – it just didn't even occur to me that I needed to know anything about property. However, she never gave up on property and after saving enough for another investment property, started to really research into that industry and its technicalities. I just had always heard that property makes money, which is why I had just always put my money into property. That was much more suited to my risk profile than shares or stocks, you know, at the time. So that's when I started to, well, not not straight away. I kind of took me quite a lot of time to recover. But when I started getting some money together again and savings, I thought, okay, property is still the right vehicle for me in terms of wealth creation. I know I can do really well in property, but I, obviously there's a lot more that I need to know. So how do I identify the right property in the right place at the right time, given I've spectacularly stuffed it on the wrong, you know, wrong properties in the wrong place at the wrong time? So about 18 years ago, actually, I started researching about, you know, what does make a good property. So I remember at the time thinking, you know, if I just bought one thing in Sydney, I would be minted now. You know, I would not have to be concerned about this at all. But even that's probably not true. You know, like it's um, it's easy to look at that. But, you know, again, it's I mean, by if you bought a, an apartment in Rosebury in Sydney right now, would that be a good investment in six years' time? Who knows, you know? It's a declining market. It's oversupplied. The rental yield is very low in Sydney compared to most other capital cities. Um, so I'm, I may well have also been in that situation where I couldn't afford to hold the property to realise the capital growth um, because it was causing too much stress on my lifestyle. So um, it's, you know, it's very easy to make those assumptions. So I just thought, okay, I really, you know, I'm good at research. I've written a thesis. You know, I've done all of that work at uni. Um, how hard can it be? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I started physical. looking into it. Farquhar found that there are certain kill points when it comes to looking at property investment from a bigger picture. In the, it, it really isn't rocket science, but there is a science to it, you know, and being able to put it together in a methodology that is methodical and, um, you know, makes sense and flows, you know, like one of the, when I look at the macro research, which is, you know, um, economy, employment, infrastructure, supply and demand, demographics and population. Um, when you look at those key things, you know, I often say to my my clients, you know, with this methodology, there are a couple of kill points, right? And that means that 
if this criteria is not satisfied to, you know, to the right, you know, degree, then we stop the research right there. There's no point continuing. So out of those, out of those um, areas of macro research, where what is the first kill point? It's the economy, right? If the economy is not diversified enough, so I think mining towns, okay? Um, if you've got a single driver of growth for the economy or a small economy, um, then that's that's inherently risky. You don't have enough insulation for your um, for your property. So, and we even use this metric, and this is probably quite controversial, but at the moment, but I even look at. Um, you know, look at the capital cities of Brisbane and Perth, you know, and Brisbane is, the Brisbane uh, economy is very much, um, you know, the success of that economy is driven by mining, um, as is the Perth economy. However, Brisbane has a much more diversified mining, um, mining companies and mining types from, you know, bauxite to coal to gold and silver and, you know, a million other things, sand, magnesium, copper, nickel, uh, you know, gas, you, you name it. Whereas, you know, Perth is really very, very much dependent on iron ore. Um, it, yes, it has a couple of other, you know, good uh, good mines, but, you know, the Argyle mine is, is closing. Hopefully lithium will be a good, good option for WA, but if something happens in WA mining, Perth is hugely impacted by it, and we've seen that in the last cycle. So while many investment experts are saying, you know, great time to invest in Perth, um, I disagree. I think for you know a four hundred thousand dollar investment, there are there are better options for a, a savvy investor than going into Perth. Yeah, and and that comes back down to opportunity cost as well. You know, if you put your money in, in Perth for four for four hundred thousand and you have to wait ten years before it grows, you possibly have missed out on other opportunities around the other states in Australia to get the growth as well. Exactly, and that's why the that's why the macro research is so important to get the timing right. We're really looking to invest in get into property that is in a rising market, um, because look, really, when you're looking at looking at new property in particular, which is what we specialise in, um, you, you, it's really the time in the market that you're going to make the most amount of money, right? And it's it's compound interest that does you more favours than anything else, uh, long term. But if you get the timing right, then and you invest in say like seven, eight, nine on the you know on the property clock, then the gains that you're going to make between nine and twelve, which is really the growth quadrant of the market, should insulate your investment from the shocks that are going to come in the declining market and the you know the trough market, you know twelve to six. Um, and even if at the, at, by the time you get around to seven, you're kind of really at the same point. Um, that's, you know, because you've gone up and then you've gone down, that's still okay because at that point the compound interest really kicks in and that's when you that's when you double the property in that, you know, 11 years for a capital city and 15 years for a regional town uh, if you get that part right. She bases her whole business on this research because it applies to all investors and gives them a broader understanding of the macroeconomics behind the industry. That's the research that we do and, um, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I, I did it because, um, you know, when I was when I started to invest again and started to do well in the property market, you know, I had friends and family take note and go, you know, this is, this is really great what you're doing. Um, and I really did mortgage broking as a way of researching the market for Calla Property before I set it up. 
So I really wanted to understand more about finance because it's access to finance that really um, sort of is the reason why a market goes into decline and the reason why the market goes up again, right? So finance always precedes the fall or all the growth. And we've seen that this cycle with APRA, right? APRA, normally it's interest rates, okay? But this cycle, APRA has been, you know, imposing various, um, you know, constraints on lending and that's really what has helped to take the heat out of the market. So, and the, and other policy changes like um, changes to foreign investors and uh, stamp duty for foreign investors, uh, as well as, you know, Chinese, um, you know, Chinese internal policy for taking money out of China for Chinese nationals. So they're the kinds of things that um, I thought, I, well, they're just the kinds of things that I didn't understand about the cycle. So um, I did my mortgage broking and, you know, look, the mortgage broking qualification is, is an easy thing, but it's more the practice, you know, and having a couple of years practicing it and going, okay, this is what this market is about, you know, really understanding the role of the RBA and, you know, different policies and, you know, how the rate is not necessarily the most important thing when you're talking about this stuff. By readily preparing this research beforehand, Farquhar is able to answer all the questions her clients may have. It's hugely beneficial in terms of being able to add value to my clients because while I'm qualified as a you know financial planner, mortgage broker, real estate agent, all I do is this very narrow thing which is color property for generally speaking busy professionals who want who who you know, there's so much chatter in the market. They've listened to their friends and family. They've heard all the stuff on the media and they still don't know what to do, but they do. They, so they want a trusted advisor who can help them invest. Um, and that's that's what we do. So we don't do any lending or any financial planning, um, but we being it really is very helpful to understand policies and lending because because we, we're often the starting point for our clients, we, you know, the trust really lies with us. We have a fantastic referral network of um, amazing professionals who we refer our clients to. We call that their wealth creation team. And, um, you know, it, it really helps to when the client comes back to us and says, you know, I'm earning a million dollars and I've got $500,000 in equity. Why can I only borrow 400000 You go, okay, well, this is why. This is what's happening. You know, or when they say to us, um, why would we go interest only instead of P&I or, you know, what are, all those questions tend to come back to us. Um, and it's really just, I think, a really good value add for our clients to be able to answer those things with um, probably, probably a level of um, – uh, insight that you know a lot of other you know property people wouldn't be able to do. Certainly, real estate agents, you know, or buyers agents. Despite knowing so much about property investment in the broader industry, starting Color Property was not an easy feat for her. When I first set up Color Property, um, I was look. Even though I'd set up uh, a number of businesses prior, they were all in the Blue Mountains, right? And it's easy to be brave when life is cheap. And, you know, when the last, the last um, company I set up was a, um, like a database marketing company that was, you know, pre-Google, <laughs> year 2002 or three, I think it was, um, 2000, no, 2001, I set that up. And um, 
what was I going to say about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So but, so when I was, uh, you know, kind of putting all this research together and doing the mortgage broking, I knew that this is what I wanted to do, but I was just really worried about the cost of Sydney, the cost of living. I was a single mother with a seven-year-old daughter um, and I was just like, you know, what? how am I going to do this, you know? So I started looking at investors and uh, put together a business plan. And I was presenting the business plan to someone and they, because this was somebody who had said to me about a year earlier, look, I've got $150,000 to invest and I want to invest in you. Whatever business you want to do, I know you're going to do really well. So let's go partners and, you know, just whatever it is you want to do. But I wasn't ready for it then. It was a really amazing offer and I felt incredibly flattered, but I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that mortgage broking wasn't it um, because it's it's just it's too detailed for me. Like I'm much more of a big picture, you know, grow kind of something amazing. So it wasn't exactly not, – not to say that you can't do that with mortgage broking. You absolutely can, but it wasn't something I was passionate about. However, a year later, after completing her business plans, Farquhar was unable to get together the money she thought she needed to start up the business. I put together the um, – so this is now a year and a half later that presenting to the person who uh, said that they'd like to invest in me and um, so I did this presentation and he said, look, Suze, you know, that was a year and a half. I don't have that 150000 anymore because he's invested in in, in other things. Um, and he used to work for St. George actually and, um, you know, he ended up getting out of St. George and setting up his own broking business as it turned out. So, But I was looking at the numbers and I just – really thought about it and thought, okay, this is how much I need to earn. I know I can bootstrap this business and, you know, looked at the costs of a, an office that was under a demolition clause, you know, so it was only like $1,000 a month on George Street in the city. Um, so, you wow. know, hugely. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Including everything, right? <laughs> but it was month by month. But I ended up staying there for just over two years, which was amazing because, um, you know, they've done all the light rail and this was just above Wynyard Station. So they would they, you know, literally demolish the building. But she did not give up on her business and instead, after looking at her numbers again, decided to do it herself. I looked at the figures and I thought, okay, if I put 30000 into this, which is was, was something I could comfortably, you know, put into this business, then how long do I have before I get a client? You know, and I start, started doing the sums on that and working backwards. And again, you know, data-driven approach. <laughs> a girl that loves numbers, it just always works for me. It tells a story that, that words don't, you know. So I um, looked at it and just went, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was so miserable where I was working. Like I was getting sick all the time when I never, ever get sick. Um, and that was my aha moment where I looked at the numbers and then I spoke to my – because then I had a partner and I spoke to my partner – and I said, what do you think? And he said, he said, we're going to be fine. And that's all I needed. You know, he just, he said, I will back you all the way. We're going to be great. And you've got, I think I had about six months or something before I needed a client. And anyway, so I went out on my merry way and set up my office and, you know, brought my laptop from home and my printer from home and just did everything very, very cheaply in case it failed, right? Because that's what I was, you know, gearing towards, um, making sure that it didn't fail. And I didn't really plan for it succeeding as well as it did in the first few months. And I had six clients in the first six weeks. It was extraordinary. 
Wow. Yeah, and it just it's just gone gone from strength to strength. So I think that was my aha moment. I had I had two potential investors. I presented to both of them and then I looked at the, looked at it and just went, What am I doing? You can do this, you know? So that was a that was an amazing moment for me. That was very powerful and I haven't looked back. So inspired by Susan Farquhar's story. We'll keep the conversation going in a future episode where she shares more of the details regarding her property investing strategy. I wish I'd had a different mindset though, Tyron. I wish I had understood more about what can go wrong with property uh, where I just sort of heard that. The story behind her 130 points of property criteria for investment properties. So um, that's why I keep, you know, like uh, the research now, Color Property Insights, um, incorporates 130 points of criteria. I think I started out with 24. You know, it just keeps growing and growing. Her tips to maintaining a healthy lifestyle while keeping busy and running a business? You know, just in the last few weeks, it's like not turning the TV off, playing the piano, um, going to the gym and yeah, it's, it's, that's a really nice thing. Things that feed my soul, you know, rather than just make me feel like I've done nothing. <laughs> and that's next time in a future episode on Property Investory. Also, are you interested in small investments with big profits? If the answer is yes, simply text me your email address to 0499881040 to register your interest. When you sign up, you'll receive deals at wholesale price which I've negotiated with the vendor. These deals generate positive cash returns from day one and I only send these out exclusively to my community. To find out more, text me your email address on 0499881040. Thanks for listening.